Hello and welcome to episode 14 of the Performance Cycling Podcast. I'm Todd here with my co-host Jason. Hello. We're back from our Tour de France hiatus. We watched way too much cycling and didn't have enough time to record an episode, but we'll talk about the Tour de France anyhow. Yeah, so our hot take, Todd, go for it. So I'm going to pose the question here and get your opinion. Is uh, Egan Bernal, our new Tour de France champion for 2019, uh, is this a flash in the pan? Spoiler, Todd. Or is he... Uh, a generational rider is uh, an individual who we're going to see break all sorts of records. I think that I can see both happening. Uh, he's he's very small. He certainly could be prone to injury issues, overuse injuries, stuff like that. I think all these riders are. Uh, at the same time, he has the capacity. I mean, he's shown potential from a very young age, very high VO2 max, winning the Tour de France at 22. Uh, he shows all the markers of, um, you know, I could win this a bunch of times. Also, I read a few articles about how c- all of his coaches since 14 or 15 have talked about how his attitude, he has a very mature attitude towards performance and towards development and has the maturity to do the hard work to make sure, you know, all the little stuff is done, like recovering properly, sleep enough, all that stuff. So he has the maturity. He has the you know, innate athletic ability. It's all there. It's just, you know, does he crash on a descent and mess up his hip? And, you know, then, then what could have been, I don't know, you know, you know, you don't know until it happens or if it happens. Right. Yeah. We'll hopefully be able to observe what happens over, over time one way or another. I think I'm going to say, yes, we're going to see him break a whole bunch of records. Uh, Obviously there are many, many unknowns going into the future. Um, obviously injury is a big piece of that just luck right in the tour de france or any of these big races can play a, a massive role in determining the outcome independent of how strong you are as a rider but i think for him you know he's 22 he's won his first tour de france if you compare it to the other great riders that have won many tours he's starting off a lot younger so just i'm thinking from a pure opportunity standpoint and right, if he's trying to win five and be you know on par with the greats he just has more opportunities, right? You figure he could be competitive until he's 32, 33 easily. You know, he 50%, right? Whereas like Froome, you know, he was, he's what, four out of six participations when he's been trying to win. Yeah, that's so, true. You know, he's just his, he could have a much lower success rate of winning and still hit the, you know, the number uh, as opposed to some other riders that are started a little bit later with their first win. Yeah, I would counter that with there are, there were some other, I mean, even Kwiatkowski, after he won the world championships, everyone's like, uh, you know, excited, really excited sure. for him. And he turned into um, just a sky domestique and um, has sort of faded away from the spotlight. So it's always possible. I think though, a big issue is that Sky now has three Tour de France winners. Not not just three, the last three. Yeah. So what uh, what are they going to do? Who's going where? If they race head to head, are we um, are we going to get something different if they race head to head than if you know they raced all as a team? I wonder. You know, if 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 they do end up going to different teams, how how do the domestiques pan out? You know, which one gets to stay at Ineos? Um, it would be interesting, and we don't, we just don't have enough information. I could see him winning. He'll definitely win three. Okay, uh, I'll say that. Find find the bookie that'll give you the odds on that one. <laughs> Over under three tours to France for oh, well, Egon Bernal. I wonder if you know. I wonder if they're like you know one to one or like no bet, um, or if or if they have a real you know odds. 
I'm, I mean, I know for American sports, certainly there's a, there's a bookie in Las Vegas that would give you the odds on just about anything. I don't know. I don't know about European sports, but I, I would guess there must be some, some bookie out there that's willing to give you odds on that. Yeah. How, how favorable they are for you or not. So I think we talked about this before as well, but um, what are the chances Chris Froome gets his fifth? Gosh, I mean, knowing what I know, or at least what I've read, that's a pretty substantial injury. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a pretty big rehab process. I saw recently that he's, he's been back on the bike on a trainer and at least using the, the uninvolved leg to start to pedal a little bit. So I guess the mental piece of it's there. Um, I think for him, he's going to be pushing up against time. I don't, I don't know if he's going to be ready to go and at that level this time next year. I think that's the challenge. And then like, okay, so if next year passes and he can't do it the year after, well, you've got, you know, Bernal, who's super strong, who potentially yeah. be on a different team to compete against him, you know, Thomas, um, and any, any number of other riders, right? Pinot looked very strong for most of the tour. Mm-hmm. Uh, who knows? The what Yates ha- brothers could finally figure out how to do a Yeah, who knows what happens weeks. with Alaphilippe. Maybe he becomes a Grand Tour rider. Uh, yeah, that, there's just so many possibilities. So I think his, I think his window may be small. Um, and I think that that injury is a, a pretty big setback, but you know, if he's got the mindset, he, he may be able to make it happen. Yeah. Interesting. So our topic for the day is, uh, bike fitting specifically, um, just sort of a, a casual introduction, but also, uh, ways that you can bike fit on your own. Maybe you don't feel like your setup is quite right. Maybe you have like some pain, you know, you can't really get it quite right. Uh, and you just want to you know, double check that you're in the right position, you know, maybe not a formal fit, but what are some things you can do at home? Make sure your saddle height's the right height, you know, ha- handlebar stuff, um, just a little bit of, uh, an overview and then also some theory on, uh, bike fitting. Yeah. So I think we'll, we'll dive into the basics today. Just sort of like Jason said, like, what are the things you can do yourself just at the highest level and try to get in the, make sure you're in the ballpark, right? Make sure that there's nothing super crazy going on with your fit. And then on our next episode, we can we'll dive in a little bit deeper and talk about, okay, well, what are the specifics and a little bit more technical perhaps and try to understand. So, okay, well, I'm in the ballpark and it's still not quite right. Or I still have this ache here or there. Uh, what does that look like if you go to a, a fitter and what are they looking for and how, how is that whole process going to go? So, yeah. so part one or two, we'll today talk about the basics and then next time we'll dive into a little bit more depth. Uh, full disclosure, uh, Jason made me say this. So I, as a physical therapist, I do do bike fits professionally. So I, I do probably a little bit more than we're going to talk about today, somewhere closer to what we're going to talk about next time, uh, with clients, you know, cyclists of all types. Uh, so I have some, some background in this. And of course, as being a PT, I have some biomechanical background that helps with, um, understanding how a body ought to move. Yeah. And, um, my experience with bike fitting is just, uh, tinkering on my own sort of trying to, f- figure out what's wrong and you know hmm, if i tilt my saddle a certain way will it you know make this feel a little less weird or painful or whatever and um more in the like eddie Merckx style dare i compare myself to eddie Merckx, but um you know he was known for adjusting his saddle a couple millimeters during a ride um, if it didn't feel quite right and i don't do it that I, I you know i'll never stop in the middle of a ride but um if i have an uncomfortable week i'll have a little bit of a think about why that could be and maybe make some slight changes. So um, overview for fitting, I think the first thing that 
like why are you getting a bike fit is kind of the first question like what is bike fitting what's the theory what's the over overarching idea and the idea is you're balancing comfort with maximal biomechanical function is that correct yeah i mean i think highest level just being crude we're we're looking at three or five depending on how you think about the world points in space uh and we're trying to balance those so your three or five points in space are your your hands and your feet if you count those left and right that's four and then your bottom in three-dimensional space right and how they how they relate to one another and to your point right we're trying to get the maximum biomechanical efficiency for your body in that moment and what i mean by that is your body changes and adapts over time so you can you can you have inputs right your training is an input if you have <clears throat> stiffness maybe stretching or some sort of um, intervention to address that stiffness is an input if you have weakness strength training is an input to alter that mm -hmm. so i think of bike fitting not as a static process that happens once but as a dynamic process that evolves over time right so how you are today your mobility your flexibility your strength and then okay your bike should be fit in a, in a certain way to accommodate that and you know six months from now you may do a whole bunch of strength and uh, core stability work and then your bike can be fit slightly differently and your biomechanics your body will handle that um, and it'll be optimal whereas you know before because you didn't have the strength of mobility you couldn't have gotten into that position and pedaled comfortably for the duration that you needed to yeah so uh, you know if you start on the progression of of working on your bike fit you'll start in a relatively conservative position like a more comfortable position usually because your flexibility is not high enough to accommodate something that would be like biomechanically optimal um, so over time, you know, you should be doing your exercises, your stretching, your core work so that eventually you can slowly progress into that position. And you'll see a lot of pros, um, they have kind of unique positions. And one big thing is don't try to emulate the pros because they have worked very hard on getting the core strength and the flexibility and, um, the power to be able to stay in that position. But also, when they were working towards that position, they did the same progression of every three to six months getting another fit and slowly getting into the right position, you know, the, the slam stem that we all know. Um, I, think, um, I think that most riders should really focus on just being comfortable. And that's because I'm a road racer and my races are four hours and it's not the person who has the highest sprint. It's the person who has the highest sprint after four hours who does the best. And uh, if you're comfortable, your muscles are going to be the happiest uh, after four hours. And, you know, if you're just riding for enjoyment as well, it's the same thing. Like, you know, yeah, this positions, you know, you can go one mile an hour faster. And it, and it looks cool. <clears throat> yeah. Um, but when you have, you know, searing back pain on the last climb of the day, it, it takes away from the experience. Yeah, I, I think I would totally agree with you. And you're you are going to perform your best when your body is most comfortable. And typically, when I think about that is, and we've talked about this many times, how how our muscles work, right? It's on a it's on kind of a sine wave, right? And there's a there's a sweet spot in the middle where we're going to produce the most power. Um, and I I correlate that sweet spot in the middle of our range of motion to probably be like when our joints are in the middle of a range of motion, they're most comfortable. Our joints don't tend to like to be pressed up against the end of the range of motion for a long time. 
you can do it for a little bit. You do it in a stretch. Maybe you do it for a couple minutes in the, a yoga pose as you're working on your mobility, but you don't want to be doing it for four hours when you're on your bike ride every, you know, every cycle for 90 RPMs for that long, whatever joint that is, is not going to be super thrilled. So yeah, I think shoot for comfort and the performance will come from that and then do the other things, the additional pieces to improve mobility, improve strength. And then you can get into these more aggressive positions that, you know, do yield some performance benefit, right? Because it's more aerodynamic. Right. So let's talk a little bit about um, these five points. Uh, where do you want to start? Uh, I mean, I guess the, the one we always talk about, right? I think it's the, the big one for bike fitting is your saddle height. I think that's the, the one that's like, how high should my seat be is the, a good starting point. And then you can move other things around that. Okay. Um, and so the other piece with this five points is everything's referenced off the bottom bracket. Every, every bike has a bottom bracket. And if you set those five points the same relative to the bottom bracket on any two bikes, independent of the geometry, you're, you will be in the same position. What the bike does is a different story. It depends on what the bike is, right? And what the bike's meant to do. Yep. But you, you will be in the same position if you make those five points the same relative to the bottom bracket. So high level seat, like gross assessments you can do yourself to get your seat in the right spot. Um, and there's a couple methods that are measurement based and some that are very simple. I think the simplest thing is the, uh, heel on the pedal test. So you sit, sit on the saddle with your shorts and everything on some flat shoes and you just get your heel, uh, centered over the pedal axle. And, and when your pedals at the six o'clock position and is your leg all the way straight, like that is a very simple ballpark assessment. Like is my seat height about right? It's not very precise but it you know it's if you get that you're pretty close at least yeah and that's just a coincidence of the fact that um your heel's going to be lifted up usually at that six o'clock position when you're clipped in so yep. then it allows your knee to be slightly bent and it's just sort of a, a convenient coincidence that that uh allows for a pretty good estimation of your seat yeah height. typically most folks have between 10 and 20 degrees of um angle in their foot at the right they're their foot's pointing down about 10 to 20 degrees. So that gives you that difference in the knee, the knee angle. Um, now there, there are other methods that are more precise and require some measurement. Um, there's two inseam methods. So one is to multiply your inseam by 1.09. Um, and that, that method looks at the distance from the pedal to the saddle, right? Cause, other, cause otherwise you'd be too tall. Okay. Um, so that that that, yeah. that takes into account the length of the crank when you're doing that measurement. Okay, one point oh nine times your inseam. Your inseam. So that's uh, all the way to the floor. Yep. All the way up. All the way to the floor. All the way up. And um, the one point zero nine is just that's um, just math of how the human body's legs. Uh, I think it's more of a crude estimate, right? It okay. Get you into about the right angle. Yeah. So and they, they just had lots of, um, lots of inseam measurements and said, you know, this will get you pretty close for, yep. you know, X percent for, of for people. most people. Exactly. Yep. Um, and I think there's the, the Greg Lamond method, um, which is same idea you take inseam and then you multiply by 0.883 and then that's measuring from the crank axle, right? From the center of the bottom bracket okay. up to the top of the saddle. And so that's where that difference comes in is basically it's the crank length between yep. those two. It's about that 
which I think makes sense if you look at your bike and you measure from the bottom bracket to the saddle and then you measure the length of the crank. That crank's probably about 20% of that mm-hmm. overall distance there. So when I worked at the bike shop and we would have people test ride bikes, we would always just, um, for road bikes specifically, we would always just put the saddle up to their waistband, um, which is an even more crude uh, way. So when you're... Um, well, that probably gives you actually like 1.09 of the inseam about, right? Yeah. When I guess you subtract nine, distance from the floor. 9% over. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, if you're, um, you know, even have like a cruiser or something that, um, you know, you're taking out at the beach boardwalk and you just want to get the saddle height kind of right, um, that's a good place to start. Like that's very crude. Um, if you're looking to do serious riding, you should probably try one of the other methods. Um, the other thing I would say, especially for the heel method, make sure that you're not um, dropping your hips at all. Mm-hmm. So it's really common to to um, lean off to the side of the bike that you're reaching down on as a way to, to you know, oh, I'm reaching it with my heel. Um, but in reality, um, you, you've taken some of that distance into the, you know, moving your, mm-hmm. your hip towards the floor. So, of course, when you go to the other side, you, you know, you'll rock your hip back. And um, you've seen riders who hit, whose hips rock back and forth across the saddle. And, um, <laughs> it's a really great way to get a saddle sore. Yeah, or um, I, I'm just worried about their lower back well, more that, than anything that's, else. That's true as well. So um, saddles. Oh, another thing I was going to say about bike fitting, um, this idea of con- continuous versus discrete increments of change. Mm-hmm. So some bikes uh, like felt, I believe, has uh, for their stem angle, it has um, interlocking five degree. Are they five degree or three degree? Um, like they're like basically it's, look it's like right. gears. Oh, so it's like uh, you can adjust the yeah, angulation. So you you know you rotate them and it changes the saddle because the um, saddle inserts at one particular location. So basically, this device allows you to increment the saddle by two degrees at a time, and this is a discrete uh, change in your saddle or in in your stem versus mm-hmm. um, something where you have to order a new stem or other times if you have an adjustable stem, it's just a uh, bolt tightened. Mm-hmm. So that's a continuous, uh, and you know, seat height is continuous. Uh, seat angles, continuous, your cleats all in two dimensions, mm-hmm. uh, where they sit on your shoe is continuous. So continuous stuff, there's an infinite number of possible combinations. And, you know, we have five things that touch the bike and those can all be moved in one or two dimensions each. So you start to look at the total number of possibilities for how a bike could fit. Uh, it becomes like really quickly, uh, like unmanageably large, like what, what possible combinations you could do. So that's why it's important to start with these guidelines because it's just such a, a massive problem if you don't, you know, start there and then, you know, make personal adjustments. Yeah. And I think that's the key, right? Is the guidelines basically cut out like, 95 percent of the possibilities right right off, right off the bat and they're like well those are that's completely unreasonable you wouldn't you wouldn't put the seat there that doesn't make yep. any sense so yeah start starting there i'm a fan of the measuring things only because like measuring your inseam and adjusting as a starting point because if you do the other things you can end up hopping on and off your bike quite a bit right? if you do the heel method you're like, oh it's my knee's almost straight well how 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 much different was it i don't know it was i think it's seven millimeters long about seven like 
Oh, nope, that's yeah. not, that was too much. Now it's down. Now yeah, it's, and you up and down, up, down and up and down. down. Yeah. If you measure it, you measure it once, you put it there, and then you can figure it out, right? And then mm-hmm. you can know. And you, you can also always go back to that point, right? Your enzyme, unless you're a youngster, your enzyme isn't changing, right, after mm-hmm. a certain age. So you can always go back to that point. You write it down on a notepad or something and store it somewhere. And, okay, yeah, I, I started at, you know, 67 centimeters. Great. Let me go back there. Yeah, it is definitely good to write down these measurements when you're done adjusting. And also if you, maybe if you, for some reason, don't know your measurements, write those ones down in advance as well. So after your second ride and you go, oh, I messed something up with with this new fit, let's just revert it back. If you didn't write those down, you're in a sticky place for sure. Always, 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 always write down your starting point. If you have a decent starting point, write it down and, and, and store that somewhere safe. So seven iterations later, when it really is terrible, you at least know what was halfway reasonable. Yeah. So yeah, if you ever go backwards on your fit and it gets worse, um, you know, you can, what's that version, uh, you know, reverse, like revert it back to the old version, like software style. Control Z. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So next let's talk about cleats. Those are actually, they're not very fun because of, like I said, the two dimensional nature of cleats yes and well three-dimensional because you can uh, rotate them as well yes well and the other piece of it is there's many different pedal systems but we'll, we'll ignore that for now okay uh, right because i think different different pedal systems play differently particularly with float and sometimes lateral play uh, which can which can factor in well but... we can talk about float a little bit um i started with high float and i've come to enjoy lower float because it doesn't allow for biomechanical um, issues when I had high float, my knees could move a lot. Mm-hmm. And instead of um, addressing a problem, you know, if if you don't have float, you just get pain. So then you know something's wrong. If you have high float, your knee can do this crazy tracking. Your ankle can do this crazy tracking, and you don't know that you're you're getting tight. You're in a bad fit. All these things. So you get better feedback from a tighter system. Also, it's theoretically more efficient. I believe, uh, yeah, in terms of I mean, power transfer, stuff like that. You're not going to lose it in motion other planes. Um, I think, I guess the question you know becomes is, do you want to work on yourself or do you just want to ride your bike? Hopefully you want to, you know, you're, you're in it and you're excited enough about it. Okay. I'll put a little bit of time and energy into taking care of my own body to make sure that biking is healthy for me. Um, and then you'll say, okay, well, I'm going to investigate this and talk to somebody that knows and work out what, what flexibility limitation, what strength limitation do I have here that's causing this wonky movement pattern. Um, if you just want to ride your bike, then maybe the more um, free floating system is for you. And by, by all means, like if it works for you, it works for you. Uh, not, yeah. you know? I guess that's my, uh, my bias is yeah. um, towards fixing my body. Um, but you know, at the same time, if you have all sorts of excessive movement, free float may not be good for you because now you're doing this movement pattern that has all sorts of excessive or inefficient movement for, you know, hundreds or thousands of cycles every time you go for a bike ride. And eventually something is going to start to yell at you. Yeah. I mean, the ultimate in float is uh, fl- like sneakers, Yeah. Um, right. which, uh, <laughs> you know, we like if you're a decent, um, you know, decent enthusiast, you've, you've progressed on to, um, you know, clipless pedals and, um, I think that, you know, float high float stuff is, you know, sort of going back towards sneakers almost um, yeah, in a, in a certain way. So you're connected. Yeah. Except you can lift up. Yeah. Yep. So, um, 
that's all that's all for float i think that what's complicated is um the forward and back as well as i think side to side i've had i've had success just neutral mm-hmm. um if so my most recent pair of shoes and we we did a shoes episode um they actually have a line uh, uh stamped into the carbon of like this is the center line of the shoe mm-hmm. and i use shimano cleats they have two uh lines stamped into the plastic mm-hmm. that indicate the center line and you match those up and you've got your side to side and you have your angle if you don't have any um you know angle yeah. issues and yep. you you want to keep the angle right then you also have the angle so you, you have yep. centered and you have the angle yep. just based on that one marking and that is a, like a great example of reducing the number of uh, possibilities yeah no i think that's that's all good so i think when we start to talk about cleats we have to also maybe go back to seat we said seat height we didn't talk about fore aft so i think that'll we'll have to circle back to that because that that will influence so the yeah the so the seat can go forward and back it can also change tilt angle yep so Uh, so we'll have to to circle back on that one um cleats you know i think for yeah, yeah center it center it in the shoe that's a good starting point um as far as fore aft on the shoe Again, that's it, like towards the toes. Toe, towards yeah, the between the, the position between the toes and the heel. You know, the general guidance is starting about a centimeter behind the ball of the foot. And in that reference, we're looking at the sort of the, the first metatarsal head. So it's the joint of the big toe there right, where the big toe meets the foot. Uh, looking at that point and moving back, that, that's a fair, a fair thing. Um, a good starting point, again, in general. If you want to be slightly more complicated, the metatarsal heads do curve a little bit, bit from back to front, such that the first metatarsal at the great toe is a little bit further forward than the one of the little toe. Uh, so uh, I've seen suggestions of well, sort of take the middle point of that and then use use that as your as your marker. It's probably about a centimeter behind the big toe, maybe a touch more, depending on how big your foot is and total. Um, distribution so that's a good starting point and then you can you can adjust from there usually forward doesn't go well for most people in my experience um if you if you're on the track you may go a little further forward right so um sprint power but more forward will allow for better leverage for your calves um, because you increase the distance um to so so like the lever arm is longer for the calves Your your foot's basically becoming a longer lever and um I actually saw a really cool, you know, the well, the Champs-Élysées, um, they had a really cool side shot of Andre Greipel because mm-hmm. that's like the one race that they can get a moto to right. go up alongside. alongside of it. And mm-hmm. um, they had a really good um, video of him sprinting and you can see each of his muscles um, contracting in you know, the right positions in mm-hmm. the pedal stroke. And it's like six or seven o'clock is when the calves start to really kick in. You're like past six o'clock. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he really got a lot of um, of toe down mm-hmm. to really like push the pedals backwards. And that, you know, watching that, I was like, oh, like that's a sprinter who who is using all of his legs, including his calves. Mm-hmm. Um, so I feel snappy. You know, if you, I, I like to go actually a little forward, um, they normally say like someone like a time trialist, you really can put it back pretty far. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember reading a study that at higher intensities, riders will use their calves less mm-hmm. uh, because it's, um, 
for you know that it, it's a muscle that fatigues quite quickly mm-hmm. so um if you're doing some sort of steady state effort you probably don't want to use your, your calves much anyway so you should you know err on the side of going more aft in your position but i would say uh like for me as a rider track riders this is also the case there's a lot of like micro accelerations and being able to kick with your calf i think gives you just that a little tiny like a couple inches mm-hmm. that you need to get your handlebars in front of someone else's so that's maybe a little more advanced but if you see yourself as someone who's like a little more snappy yeah maybe at some point you need to have a i mean i just say as a, as a general rule basically i'd look at how long are you trying to ride for and the long the longer that is the further back you move your cleat yeah. and the shorter that is probably the further forward you're going to move your cleat mm-hmm. um, as a general rule uh, that tends to work pretty well and yeah. i think the other part with calf is there's two muscle groups there i don't know if i should go down this road but the soleus is more of an endurance muscle and then the gastroc is more your your sort of acceleration muscle right and okay. so when you get the gastroc going yeah it's not gonna last very long but it'll give you that that punch and you're taking advantage of that as you start to move that cleat forward. Yep. So uh, obviously you want to keep the center of the cleat pretty much over the metatarsal heads, but mm-hmm. um, you know it's just you know if you feel like the center pressure is up towards your toes, that's you've gone too far forward. And if you feel like the center pressure is over your arch, it's it's hard to get that far if you if you have correct fitting shoes. But if you you know you should really be feeling like you're pressing through the first or maybe the second. metatarsal heads like i i generally feel like in between the two um yeah is is where where you end up um, if you're if your cleats are in the right position uh, between the first two metatarsal heads is sort of where you should feel like you're pressing into the pedals yeah and i mean i think there's you know some some personal variation too right like just where how your anatomy is and how far back but you know with most shoes now just the ones i've seen and how they're all drilled it's really hard to get your cleats really far forward. They tend to be biased towards putting you a little further back than a little further forward. Like, they, like you have to have a really ill-fitting shoe to get your cleat slammed super far forward. Yep. So uh, we can circle back to saddles. Okay. All, uh, all, all dimensions are well, at least actually, four, four at. No, but, let's do... Um, so angle... Okay. angle um i was always told the easiest thing to do is try and get your feet to match your standing foot angle mm-hmm. so some people stand with their toes out some people stand with their toes in um if you know you just this is the if you just want to ride um you should match try and match that on the um on the bike as best you can i know that for toes out your heel will eventually start to interfere yep. with the crank arm so do your best and don't get too close or you'll rub away both the shoe and the um, crank arm eventually, but um, I, I I don't know very many riders who are toe in. Um, you see them every once in a while. Yeah, I mean, I think I'd add that. I just say don't feel like you have to match it entirely. I'd say more go for the the flavor of it, right? Like you're toed out a little bit, then maybe your your cleats match that a little bit. If you're toed in a little bit, your cleats match that a little bit. But you don't you don't have to match it necessarily degree for degree. Okay. Um, and you know, obviously one, like some people have one foot that's one way and one foot that's square. Right. And so great. That's totally cool. If you want to have your right cleat toed out a little bit and your left cleat straight on, mm-hmm. um, then great. Uh, the other thing that I tend to have people do just to keep them honest about this is hop up and down in place and then look in a mirror. Because I think if you try to observe yourself doing it, you'll make some subconscious correction 
of mm-hmm. what your foot or like what you think your foot does. So just just hop up and down in place a couple of times and look at how you land, and then and then take that as mm-hmm. your sort of your true um, answer to where you where you'd be. I like to think of it as like you're waiting in line in the, at the coffee shop mm-hmm. and you just look down at your feet. Um, that I I, don't, I mean. I do that. I don't know if other people do, but that can also um, be a really natural way to see what you do. Yeah, I think I think that's the key, though. It has to be something that's natural. It can't be forced. Like if you if you think about it too much, you're going to do this. And I see it, I see it all the time with patients. They're like, "Hey, can can I watch you walk?" And once I ask, then they fix all the things that were not ideal. It's like, well, that's not what I actually wanted to see. I get more information than I watch you walk into the clinic before I tell you. Yep, and that's what you're actually going to do. But once I let you know that I'm watching, then you change and show me your best. Mm. So on the topic of um, foot, like toe in, toe out, um, these are my, it's my understanding these are can be indications of a mobility issue. Is that correct? Sure. Right. If you have, depending on, can be hip limitations, could be foot and ankle limitations. Um, so yes. And you see all sorts of, yeah. So yes, usually I'd say, Oftentimes it's either mobility restriction or it's some funky funkiness in the fit elsewhere that's causing you to do something goofy at your foot um, okay. when you're pedaling that you see like, oh, wow, your foot's doing like you're you're rubbing away that crank arm. Like, why is that happening? Mm-hmm. Oh, well, there's something else goofy in a different plane. And this is your body's compensation to handle that. Yeah. So, you know, if your foot is out of alignment, that could be an indication of something. It doesn't necessarily say what exactly but just something in the chain upwards um, mm-hmm. is yes, out of whack it is a little a, bit. It is a sensitive test for saying there's something wrong, but not specific for telling you what is indeed yep. wrong. Um, so that's uh, that's about it. Um, I guess the the side to side, um, you know, usually you're pretty set by just putting it in the middle of the shoe if the shoe is well fitting. Um, if you feel like you're putting too much pressure on the wrong part of the foot yeah if you're inner like inner, inside of the foot outside of the foot that kind of balance yeah uh, shoot question one shoe yeah uh, make sure that it's wide enough um if you're putting too much too far in or too far out and um maybe you could try side to side adjustment a little bit but um i know you're not a very big fan of that yeah because i so when i think about that it's like you want to push through the center of your foot as much as you can and if you're not doing that then and some people's hips are wider than others, right? So your natural stance width may be wider than the Q factor on your uh, and, and your pedal spindle width total. So maybe you need wider or narrower uh, pedal spindles. And again, and with that, like your foot should be aligned underneath your ankle, should be aligned underneath your knee, should be aligned underneath your hip. So it, you don't I, don't. I don't think you want to go moving your cleat too much because now, like, oh, I, I moved my cleat and got my foot perfectly aligned underneath the rest of my leg except now I'm pushing through only my little toe. That's really not awesome. Whereas if you adjusted your uh, pedal spindle width, width or something about the Q factor of the bike, you can you can keep your align, you can get your alignment the way it should be at the lower extremity. And now you're also pushing through the middle of the foot. Yeah. So for um, spindle width, I mean, this is, I think a lot of fitters don't even touch this. It's a bit of a rabbit hole. Um, is there a quick and easy way to say, oh, I guess my, so what is it exactly? Like my femurs sit a little bit wider or just my hip bones are wider or could be, could be that. I mean, so we'll just say broadly anatomical. Okay. Right? 
and so for but like it's anatomically it's more comfortable for my femurs to be further apart than you know what these crank arms were designed for is that yeah i think that's a fair right okay. so your your anatomy is such that you your you want to have a wider stance than shimano Camp, campagnolo tram whoever decided that it ought to be on your bike yeah um and so the way i look at it is i look at it uh, i don't use a plumb bob i use a laser level and i project the line and i want to know does basically your second toe sort of bisect your ankle joint and does that line continue up through your knee joint and does it continue up through your hip joint and all those should be aligned and then if not what i'm going to end up doing is i'm going to move your foot such that it falls whatever i'm going to move i'm going to move from the foot to put the foot underneath the knee hmm. all right so typically it's a foot knee issue like the the femur and the knee kind of travel together right they're attached yeah um, so and it's like okay well how, what's happening with the foot relative to the knee and then let me move that foot underneath the knee you don't yeah. move the knee per se you move you know, the foot underneath the knee and so can i how do i adjust that perhaps i move the spindles in or out to get okay. to get the body in that position so the the um but, but you're start, saying on the bike the laser yeah um, checking so how do you check through the second toe if they you know have their cleats on well, you put a marker on it. You, you find. Okay. This is like this is like clearly next time's topic. Okay. Uh, okay. But yeah, you, you we've overstepped. You, our... you, you mark their you mark their second toe. Yeah. And you know whatever. Usually I use a sticker, um, and then I shoot through that and then get all the way up. Okay. Um. So yeah. So that's cleats. Uh. We did shoes as as we said previously. Um. So make sure that your shoes are correct as well. And I personally have noticed a, a big difference with different shoes. Yeah, shoes are a subtle thing that, I mean, I think it's so obvious if you come from running, like, oh, yeah, it's the right shoe, or it's, this is not a good running shoe. Mm-hmm. But biking, I think it, you can, you can ride a long time in a so-so fitting shoe, and then all of a sudden you put on a proper fitting shoe, like, oh, yeah, that's different. This is nice. Why, yeah. why, why did I ride like that for so long? Yeah. Um, so, and it's also tough to, you know, how, how do you know if it's the right shoe right. and uh, the yeah. convenience of trying to ride in it and purchasing it? And yeah, I think it's one of these things like you don't, you, you don't actually know until you find it. And unfortunately, sometimes it takes us a while to find it. We, we like, we ride in uncomfortable shoes for a long time. Like, Oh, I didn't know there was better. I thought this yeah. was just how it is. Cause this was the cool shoe brand that everybody recommended. So I've actually had good success with, um, people offering for, to return shoes. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I guess growing up, I always thought, you know, the day you walk out with the shoe, it's like, that's it. But um, it seems like bike shops have caught on that, um, you know, cycling shoes can be a bit weird. So um, I've I've been to multiple shops that offer like 30 day returns or something, mm-hmm. which is more than enough time to, you know, at least see if it's better. Yep, absolutely. Um, and, you know, the you can decide on the morality of uh, cycling every 30 days to make sure you get the right shoe eventually. Um but, you know, theoretically, it's possible. So we circle back to saddle adjustments that aren't height. So provided you got your saddle height reasonably in the ballpark, yep. what are these other things that we look at? Um, okay, what well, you want to do, let's do fore aft first. I think yep. that's so good. that's uh, closer to the stem, further from the stem. Yep. Um, so I don't know if I know that much about this. Um, I just know that the further back, 
you get better glute engagement. Mm -hmm. Um, The thing that you have to worry about with the fore and aft is it does change your effective saddle height. So we didn't talk about this when we did the saddle height, but um, saddle height is normally measured from the bottom bracket to the center of the saddle. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, if you, if you push the saddle backwards, the, you know, the angle changes slightly. So then the the total length changes. Yeah. So um, you have to, I don't know if I've ever, you know, some people will say you have to lower the seat, you know, one millimeter for every four millimeters back or, um, I, you know, I, I've never done that. I've done some four aft movement, um, but I've also was increasing my flexibility while I was doing that. So I was okay with a higher effective seat height um, because I knew I was more flexible to accommodate it. Yeah. I mean, I think it depends on the why, like, why am I moving it? If I'm moving my seat forward because I'm seeking greater comfort, then I may not also move it up, right? I may, I may actually be trying to achieve a, a lower effective seat position. Uh, if I'm moving it back to try to get better glute engagement and nothing else is changing, then yeah, I may need to drop it down just a touch so I'm not overreaching and I'm not pushing my flexibility. Um, so that, that's one key piece. Um, also the hip, the relative hip angle. Right? So as you push your seat back, relatively speaking your hip approaches nearer to its end of range of motion um, for a position and as you push your seat forward your hip has, is relatively further away from its end of flexion range of motion so at the six o'clock at the, position no, no no at the 12 o'clock position right your yeah. your hip is tight like your knee to chest is, is... close nearer yeah. if your saddle is back yep right and it's so if you have issues getting your knee to your chest, um, don't, going, don't. <laughs> going back will get you in trouble sooner. Yeah. Uh, relative. Um, to and, it, and that also, the, the hip angle is complicated because lowering your saddle also pinches the hip more. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, uh, w- when you think about it, the, um, you know, you're like, oh, I'll lower my saddle because I don't have great hamstring or glute flexibility. Um, but at the same time that will make you pinch in the front at the top, uh, more right. easily. Uh, so, you know, there's a bit of like a back and forth that, um, they don't help each other. They, you know, they sort yeah, of, sometimes um, they're, they're competing with yeah. one another. So for, for aft general guidance, um, going back to like old school plumb bob is if you drop the plumb bob from the, with your pedal at the three o'clock position from the, uh, tibial tuberosity so right in front of the knee the shin bone the highest point right from the knee there generally speaking for most folks um, an offset plus or minus two centimeters of that anatomical landmark to the center of the pedal spindle is where you want to be um, and again looking looking for aft so relative like front to rear wheel of the bike um, mm-hmm. forward tends to be more time trial-y type position uh, more of a track rider type position and as you move back, it tends to be more uh, endurance type position, mm-hmm. uh, more more traditional conservative type fit uh, sits back that way. And obviously, that can be that can be influenced a little bit by your cleats, like where your foot is in space, and that the fore aft of the cleat position that we talked about. But primarily, this can be driven by like, the length of your femur and where your saddle is fore aft relative to um, the crank length and. And everything there in the bottom bracket yeah so um like 
the neutral with that with plus or minus two centimeters the neutral is obviously mm -hmm. zero mm -hmm. um so that's going to be the recommended starting point and then you know if you see yourself as a certain type of rider i know that um you know like i don't know if you noticed this but uh you know how come a lot of these grand tour riders really have kind of small quads and I think it's because they actually are uh, putting a lot of the fatigue on their glutes. Mm -hmm. And you notice a lot of them actually have like pretty big butts. Um, and I think that's, you know, like your glute is your glute max, you know, the biggest muscle, muscle in your body. body. Um, and actually, I think that a lot of them have um, posterior pelvic tilt. Um, mm -hmm. I remember uh, one fitter that I worked with was saying it's really common for pros to actually be super tight in the glutes. Mm -hmm. And then it, it, it like rotates them backwards. But um you know, asking the question, why are these Grand Tour riders, you know, why do they have such small quads? And it's, well, they're, they're you know, they're doing tempo mostly, you know, yeah, there's, there's some threshold days on the, um, you know, beyond category, you know, mm -hmm. days, but for the most part, they're doing uh, endurance tempo, you know, they really want to keep the fatigue off their legs as much as possible. And, you know, they have figured out somehow that that means really engaging the glutes. And then you look at riders, one day classics riders, um, for track sprinters. Yeah. Um, yeah. Track sprinters have huge quads. You, you look at people who are a bit more, um, you know, selfish in terms of getting more, um, you know, more Watts out at a single time, they are going to be more forward mm -hmm. uh, on that range. So, uh, if you're an ultra endurance athlete, you're going to want to yeah, try yeah, and sit, sit back a little push further. that back. Yeah. So the other thing is uh, saddle angle. Mm -hmm. uh, saddle angle is really kind of weird. Um, we were talking about how you want to keep your joints in a neutral position. That's kind of how you keep them happy. So you want the saddle angle such that your hip is in a neutral position and your lower back is in a neutral position. Mm -hmm. um, and also the thing that... Um, I only recently really got more interested in is um, the the saddle actually supporting you in the right position. Mm -hmm. So if you look at the way a time trialist sits on a bike, they sit right on their sit bones. Uh, on the very front. On the front. Front. front yeah, the, the front, front of their front sit edge, bones. Yes. So they'll really have an anterior tilt mm -hmm. because that, that gives them more space to get the front end down. Mm -hmm. And they sit right on the front of their... Um, of their saddle and they sit mm -hmm. right on the front of their sit bones and um, this is really aggressive it's intended for a 20 to 30 minute event mm -hmm. um, and then if you're doing you know four hour road races you actually want to put a lot more weight towards the back side of your mm -hmm. sit bones um, so you actually you'll have contact um, I think you have contact in four places is that correct this depends on like again depends on the position right mm -hmm. like the relative because the, the isosurosity, the sit bone, is sort of triangular, if you will. It's not like a sharp triangle. It's kind of a rounded triangle. Um, and so to your point, right, if you're like on a beach cruiser, you're like way back on one part of it. And then as you get into more traditional road position, you kind of come on to the point a little bit. And then as you get into this time travel position, you're even super forward on that and like even further forward onto the pelvic ring sometimes. Mm -hmm. um, for some people. So I think it just depends on where you are on this seat, uh, yeah, where so this contact is. The idea is um, if you are more in this time trial position, you have to engage these muscles in, in your lower butt more 
because you're not supporting them. Mm-hmm. So because it's such an aggressive position, it's so short, you're willing to take that that extra fatigue in that area because, oh, it's it's a 30-minute event, it's fine. But if you're riding for four, five, six hours, you need the support there to turn those muscles off. Mm-hmm. Um, so the longer rides, you're going to want to make sure that the seat is really pushing up into the backside, you know, the, the back of the sit bones. Mm-hmm. So um, I, the way that I would do a seat angle is I would try and find a neutral hip position uh, and a neutral lower back position. And then you want to bring the saddle to you. Mm-hmm. So find the right position that you like. And then uh, whether that means uh, tilting, usually that means tilting it more downward. Um, I would, yeah, I would generally. Uh, I mean, I think it just goes without saying. Like, generally nose up is not good for most folks. It's yeah. generally uncomfortable because you're leaning forward to reach the handlebars and you have sensitive soft tissues there that the saddle is going to interact with in a way that you don't want. Yeah, and that's uh, that's gender neutral as well. Yes. Um, so, yeah, normally you will be at least neutral. So I was always told like the middle third of the saddle should be neutral. That's a good place to start. Mm-hmm. And then uh, when you make sure that your hips are neutral, your lower back is neutral, if you're not pressing into the back of the saddle, you need to start tilting it down to bring the saddle to you. Um, and then I know uh, Todd talked about before the podcast that uh, what what happens when you tilt it too far down yeah so i think you know it, as you go forward right and it, you can lean your trunk further forward that's great and then you, you don't get your sensitive soft tissue squished by the nose of the saddle also good uh, so that can feel pretty comfortable but if you tilt too far forward you basically end up sliding forward off the seat right the front of the you don't have a flat seat, sitting surface anymore and so you're sliding forward so Oftentimes, you're going to notice that your your quads feel like you're working really hard for the amount of effort that you're pedaling because uh, you're holding yourself up with your quads. Or a lot of times you feel the weight in your hands. Hands feel very, very heavy, like compressed. Or sometimes you'll find like you feel like you've been doing a push-up for the entire ride because mm-hmm. you, you are using your triceps to push yourself back off the bars and sort of suspend yourself onto the seat because the seat's trying to dump you forward if you're too, you know, if it's tipped too far. I typically find with fits that no more than a couple of degrees. And it, honestly, going like from neutral to one degree down to two degrees down, that's a pretty big change. Like sometimes that's night and day for some people, just one degree of tipping the seat down. It's like, oh, that's comfortable. That's nice. From like, oh, that was miserable before. Um, yeah, on the same saddle, right? We're not talking about changing saddle, just talking like on the same saddle, tipping forward one degree. Like, oh, that's good. I can do that. Okay. And um, on the topic of uh, cutouts, um... that's a that's a personal topic. I think I don't know. I is that part of fitting at all, or uh, in a in a sense, yes. I mean, I think getting the right saddle is important. Obviously, it's, that's you know one of like twenty percent of your contact with the bike, right? Um, I would say you know cut out versus not cut out there's arguments on both sides for why you should or shouldn't you know i think the uh the argument definitely the marketing argument for cutouts right is like oh well we, we put a hole where your sensitive soft tissues are so there's no compression this is great um yeah that's fair but then the counter argument is always that i've heard has always been well right now you created a ridge where there's increased pressure around that cutout right you think because what pressure is uh, force over surface area? Yeah, it's force over area. So if there's less, 
area, then and the force hasn't changed, and your weight hasn't, your mass hasn't changed, so then there must be more pressure somewhere. However, if pressure is in the right spot on the sit bones, then I think it becomes irrelevant. So I think there's some some personal preference. I would say again, my observation from doing fitting is I think it tends to be more the shape of the saddle with the rider's anatomy that drives it. And what I mean by that is like the contours of the saddle. So the, is it flat from you know nose to tail? What's the curvature of it um, side to side? Is there does it have a bow to it front to back? those sorts of things i think drive it more than a cutout that's been my experience like you can find somebody that's like oh i, I like staying with the cutout but then you put them on a different saddle shape that's better for their anatomy it has no cut they're like oh my goodness this is great why did i have that cutout seat in the first place yeah. i thought that cutout was magical and actually it was just it was okay but it the saddle shape itself wasn't the right thing for their anatomy and so like shoes there are um ways to try out lots of saddles um during a fit, sometimes they'll have a variety of saddles to use, but uh, I know there are some Facebook pages or other um, forums that allow for the, like called saddle swaps. And you basically, um, you know, I don't like this saddle, so I'll ship it to you. You ship me this one that you don't like, and mm-hmm. we'll both install them. And um, if we still don't like them, we'll find a new partner to swap with. Yep. And you, uh, you basically trade around until you find the one that's right for your anatomy. And each of the different uh, manufacturers will actually design for what they see as, you know, the generic anatomy. But mm-hmm. they're varied enough that, um, you know, they, they end up working for a certain type of rider. Yeah. And I think, I think we've mentioned this before, like saddles seems to be one of those things that they change enough over time that if you ride a lot and you find one that you really love might want to buy a couple right you might just want to invest in and buy a couple and, and store them somewhere because chances are that they may decide oh that's a cool design but we're, we made something cooler for next year and yeah. now now that one doesn't fit you the way like I, I read one thing about um you know they basically said that a lot of the users complained about a certain feature so they changed it and then mm-hmm. you know the 10 percent who really liked the saddle are just you know left out to dry yep um so yeah, I, I would say go ahead and get a few. Um, yeah, depending on what your mileage is or yeah, and how you know. often you wear them out, or if you like crash a lot. Yeah, I was <laughs> just gonna say that. If it, I mean, I mean, crit riders. I mean, you're gonna go through saddles because that's one of the places that's gonna hit the ground mm-hmm. when you crash. And um, yeah, you don't want to crash that much, but if you're like a top crit rider, you're gonna go down at least probably once or twice a season yeah or you know, mountain biking same same thing you're more prone to go down so and mm-hmm. you definitely will find some rocks or something to tear up your saddle so the only other thing i have about saddles is on the topic of the weight in your hands mm-hmm. i know one uh, popular fit it like self-fitter says that you should be able to lift your hands off the mm-hmm. handlebars and just stay there mm-hmm. uh, basically your hands floating over your handlebars yep. and that means that your seat is tilted not too far forward it's you know it's just in the correct place and you don't you know if if you lift your hands off and you're um you're just on the front of your sit bones it's not you know it's going to be pretty it's going to be pretty painful so that's an indication that the angle is not quite right so if you do have the angle right you have enough support in the back and you're also not too far forward 
you should be able to just lift your hands up. Is that reasonable? I, I, I read a few things that were like, that's kind of unrealistic for most riders, but it seems to be a prevailing idea. I think for a subset of people, if you have adequate core strength too, to be able to support that and, you know, good body control where you, you can put your weight into your feet as well, then sure. Uh, I, I don't think you should have so much weight on your hands that you can't possibly so i guess just take a step back and say so you're riding down the road and you want to take your vest off there's this moment where you got to take your hands off the handlebars mm-hmm. and if your saddle is tilted so far forward how are you gonna take your hands off the handlebars right like if you're so far forward you have so much weight in the bars you can't possibly bring yourself up yeah from that you position. would almost have to like launch yourself up, you have to like you know? push yourself off the yeah. handlebars so if you're pushing yourself off the handlebars, you've yeah. you've messed up your saddle. Yeah, or like it's so it's so hard to get reach back for that gel because you feel like you're doing a one arm push up, then something's yeah. goofy. Yeah, and uh, one counter argument to the you should be able to lift your hands up and just stay there is um, you can have some weight in your hands, some weight in your upper body. It just can't be a limiter, and right. uh, that's all these things with like what is your limiter? Why can't you do this power for twenty minutes? It's the same thing. Why can't you be comfortable for you know the duration of your race or your event or whatever? And if you know if you get shoulder pain, if you get uh, bicep, tricep, hand pain, um, then it's time to look at the the saddle. You know mm-hmm. if you do the time that um, you know you would in your event. But if you don't have issues, then you know you're good. I guess that's a good natural transition to uh, hand position since that's the yep. last untouched piece at the moment. So what is there's um, first there's different shifters have different um, shapes, contours. Yeah. Uh, and usually the high end ones are marketed as ha- you know, having a more Ergonomic, natural, yeah. yeah, a more natural contour to them. Um, there's the like location on the handlebars. So, you know, imagine further out forward and and almost even like tucking down into the drops a little bit yep there's also back more which yep. will um angle them upwards oh so you are you talking about the rotation of the handlebar no you're just talking about the movement of the, the movement. shifters yeah. around the arc of the the handlebar yep 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 um you know obvious things stem length uh stem angulation yeah. uh spacers underneath your your stem mm-hmm. um I mean, I think. I guess there's a lot. I didn't realize there, know, there's a lot. There's in the, front um, the radius and the drop of your handlebar, as well as the width of your handlebar. There's a lot yeah. of moving pieces, and I think I think a lot of them we don't touch. It's just like, oh, you ride a 42 centimeter handlebar, and it's kind of like that's that, and you know, okay, well, reach and drop, eh, whatever. But there, there are. I think the takeaway for me from handlebar is. There's a lot of adjustment that you can make if you need to. Most people are going to do fine with a middle of the road handlebar, like standard, flat, straight across, you know, reasonable reach and drop. And then getting this, if the frame's the right size, an appropriately appropriate length stem and some, some or a few spaces underneath the stem. And they're, they're pretty good for most people. It's only when all those things don't quite work that you start to go crazy with handlebars like, oh, should I go shorter reach, longer reach, bigger drop, shallower drop, less radius, more radius. Oh, there's some interesting ones that have a little rise to them too that actually bring like 
bring the bar up higher instead of it being flat straight across the top. So I think only then do you dig into those things. Yeah, but, I, I would say for fitting, you normally will focus mostly on the saddle and the cleats. Yep. And then this is sort of an afterthought if you have wrist pain. Sometimes if you have back pain, um, you can have the stem uh, yep. stem length looked at. Yep, or length or height. Uh, I think for the, just think about the upper body, uh, the big things for me. So one's like your neck position. So like, yeah, how comfortable is your neck? Can you Can you look up for a long time? Or does your neck get really sore as, as you're looking up? And if your neck gets really sore looking up, then maybe your handlebar needs to be a little bit higher, a little bit closer to you because your, your trunk is very low. And it's putting a lot of strain on your neck to look into that position. Of course, then the question is, do you have adequate neck range of motion? And that's a different topic. Uh, but so that's one thing. I think, you know, the other part is, well, let's talk about your wrist position. Your wrist should basically be in the neutral position when you're in your your normal riding position. I think most of us ride on the hoods most of the time. Um, so your wrist should basically be straight out from your arm, right? Your hand shouldn't be bent up or down. Really, it should be pretty much straight, straight ahead. And so you want to adjust your bar position, stem height, spacers, whatever combination there at the front end and the position of your shifter and brake lever combo on the bar such that your wrists are straight ahead. Yep. And so in general as well, the it's generally suggested that you have like a 90 degree angle between the torso and the arms plus that plus or minus so uh, yeah about 90 degree angle and then um so if you know depending on where your saddle is and how your hips are rotated that 90 degrees can affect the angle at which you grab the shifters Mm -hmm. so that's why um you know some people will have um, really upward shifters Mm -hmm. some people will be kind of more downward or flat Um, flat is normally seen as like cool and sleek and all that stuff, but it's, um, for most people, not the neutral wrist position. Um, right. So you do normally want to be a little bit up. Yeah. I think it's, I think the point you make is key is you, you have to be cognizant of what the trunk is doing and that's what your arms are doing because that's going to influence where your handlebar needs to be, right? A more upright trunk means it probably needs to be closer and higher, uh, a trunk that's closer to the horizontal means that it needs to be lower and further out such that you can achieve that 90 degrees around the shoulder and then uh, neutral wrist position and a little bend in your elbows. Right? Yeah. So nice you, shock you, absorption. Yep. You, you want them to be mostly, you know, tiny, tiny bend, like yeah. mostly straight, not, but not locked out. Yeah. Not locked but out. Like a barely perceptible bend in your elbows. Yep. And um, the other thing I was going to say about the shifter position is um, if you are competitive and you are sprinting, you should be sprinting from a position where you can grab the brakes um, at any moment. So um, some things that can interfere with that, like you don't want to grab all the way at the bottom of the drops Mm -hmm. unless you're um... so in track, you can do that because you don't have brakes. Yeah. Um, But, you know, I don't know, you know, maybe your your first first out of the last corner and you're just you know ripping it through but what if you want to shift uh well what if you're in your 5311 like i said it's a it's a very um specific scenario i do feel like i get better you know leverage at the bottom and the reason that you pull up is because you're pushing on the side of the bike and it wants to contra yeah yeah, you're you're resisting this the um the moment created by pushing on the pedals out of plane um but normally you would grab it like halfway up on the drops and you yeah. want to, you know, be able to have two fingers. You should be able to sprint with two fingers on the 
um, shifters are on the brakes mm-hmm. if um, you know in case you need them. Um, and then one thing that can happen depending on your the shape of your bars is you you actually interfere with the wrist on the tops of the bar. Mm-hmm. So uh, in order to get into that position, you you actually like you can't get into that position because yeah, of yeah, where the curve and yeah. So you have to either get new bars, you have to change the position on of the shifter on the handlebar, and then also change the rotation of the handlebars. Mm-hmm. Um, so you, you have to mess with this stuff, but make sure you can get into a position where you don't have um, an interaction between your wrist and the tops when you're in the drops. And I've I've had uh, some teammates who've had some purple bruises after crits because they're not quite adjusted right. Yeah, and the other thing with that, you know, you talk about reaching the brakes, is most... Uh, shift levers have brake levers have a reach adjustment, right? So if your fingers aren't long enough, you can actually bring the set point of that lever back a little bit so it's closer into the bar. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you're able to engage that. So that's an, that's another thing that you can adjust. Yep, and that's uh, like more petite riders will take advantage of that. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of so uh, stem length is. Um, I mean, that's the one that everyone likes to talk about, right? And everyone wants a 150 millimeter stem and everyone wants to be slammed. And So the the brilliant engineers that helped build your bike had a stem length in mind when they built your bike. They had, they had a weight distribution of the rider in mind when they built the bike. And it probably has to do with your weight relative to the bottom bracket and your weight being, you know, close to the your center of mass. Uh, being close to the bottom bracket and so if you get a really really long stem now you bring your center mass way over the front wheel and you have a ton of weight on the front wheel and now the handling of your bike is goofy and maybe your bike's a size too small like the pop tube's too short Um, so you want to be careful with stem both ways really right there's like i said the the engineers had a something in mind of where your weight was going to be and what how your bike would handle optimally and there, there's a range of stems for every frame size that make that happen. Like there's a range of positions of rider for every frame size that can make that happen. And if you push the extremes, either too short of a stem, now you don't have enough weight on the front wheel, or too long of a stem, and now like the weight's really on the front wheel, the handling of your bike gets goofy. So there, there's a sweet spot. Uh, I think for most riders, it's typically within a few centimeters. Like their center mass being within a few centimeters of the bottom bracket. Um, and if you if you venture too far from that, then your bike handles really funny. Yeah, so there are these things called speed wobbles, which if you're doing a fast descent, basically your front wheel uh, just uh, wiggles back and forth. And um, I think it's uh, like, um, I'm going to get in trouble for not remembering what the term is, but basically each uh, each time it, it gets more intense. Um, like it's in its resonance resonant frequency is that what you're yeah or well it's um it's it's like a growing wave Mm -hmm. so it's beyond the resonant frequency um but it it basically it'll it'll increase larger each time until Mm -hmm. eventually you know you you You, you don't control it yeah you get flown off the bike um and that would i think that's normally if you have too much weight on the front or you know you've just messed up the geometry somehow um i know some people run into that issue when they change forks because they didn't get the rake measurement right Mm-hmm. Um, but you have to be careful with that. I know that if you are a, if you are slightly further forward, like you have a little bit more weight on the front wheel, it can feel good for um, technical crits. Mm-hmm. Um, but you also um, 
you know, you could run into wrist issues or, um, you know, quad fatigue, like we talked about, if your saddle's too far forward, um, you have a lot of the same things. Um, also, you know, if your lower back and upper back aren't flexible enough for a slammed stem, um, you're not going to be in a neutral position and, you know, you're not going to get the maximal comfort, maximal power out. So, you know, there is a, a certain balance between um, keeping your head low and, you know, keeping yourself tucked down, but also making sure that, you know, you're comfortable enough to actually complete the event. Yeah. And I think the, you know, I think we've talked about this many times, I think the speed and duration at which the event is contested should largely drive that, right? If you are contesting a very fast, short event, you should probably lean toward slightly uncomfortable, but very aerodynamic. That'll probably be your best performance outcome and you probably won't even notice it's that uncomfortable right because it's so limited so short but then if you're doing uh, some crazy like race across america or something probably lean comfort because you're you're going to be less affected by the aerodynamics your speed is going to be lower for that long duration and so lean comfort don't worry about the aerodynamics as much because the the comfort is probably going to pay dividends for your performance in the long run yeah, and also actually, um, when you push down on the pedals, the resistive force lifts you off the mm-hmm. saddle a little That's bit. Right. And so these higher intensity events, well, you know, the highest intensity, you're not even in the saddle, but some of these higher intensity events, you're almost floating over the saddle, mm-hmm. um, even if you're seated. And then these, you know, 24 hour, 48 hour um, ultra events, you are really putting a lot of weight into the bike. Yep, you're, yeah, so, you're not pushing as hard. You're yep. you're pushing hard in a different way, but the force on the pedals is yeah. lower. And imagine, you know, hour 17, you're like, oh, my saddle's just a little bit too high, or you know, yeah, or it's, can, it's uh, tilted. It's tilted down. I, f- I feel like I've yeah. done my seven thousands push up now. Yeah. Um, versus, you know, yeah, the track riders like, eh, you know, it's, I don't feel, really feel anything. My legs are burning. Yeah. Also, I'm probably jacked anyway if I'm right. a track sprinter. Right. So <laughs> no more creatine phosphate circulating. Yeah. <laughs> so um, saddle angle is another thing. So that's uh, very similar to saddle length. Everyone wants it to be flat to the um, flat to the road, but uh, the same arguments can be made about saddle angle um, as saddle length, which is. Know, do you have the flexibility for it? Are you still in a fairly neutral position? Are you comfortable? Mm-hmm. Um, I think at the end of the day, you have a lot of people who are like, well, if I'm you know five percent more aerodynamic, you know, I have to do this much less power. Um, it's true, but um, you know, there's a lot more to bike racing than just the relationship between power and aerodynamics and. Uh, you'll see a lot of people sacrifice, you know, bike stability, um, their ability to be aggressive, their ability to take positions, their ability to take corners, um, to get a little bit more aerodynamics. And there are, at the same time, there are some really, really strong athletes who are straight upright on their bike and they still, you know, can outkick me. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, at the end of the day, you have to figure out what works for you. Are you, you know, some people are like more willing to be uncomfortable for that aerodynamic advantage. Some people are like, I'll just have a lot of watts. You know, if you if you feel like you're energy limited, maybe you do need to take advantage of aerodynamics a little bit more. Um, this is all personal preference stuff. Yeah, I think you know everybody's optimal equation is slightly different, right? And I think it's all about finding where that is and being willing to. Uh, make a, a bike fit that accommodates to what you're willing to do, right? So some of us like, hey, I'm going to go out and do 
flexibility and core stability training so I can get into this really aero position, awesome. Then know that your bike fit can be more aggressive in the future. If that's not you, then know that maybe a slightly more conservative position is going to be better for you uh, as far as optimizing your performance. Uh, yeah. So did we have anything else for the handlebars or I, mean, I think we, I think we arrived at handlebars are complicated. Um, Oh, uh, handlebar width. So that's a big, um, well, it, I think it got a lot of popularity at one point. Um, so wider is better so you can breathe better that, that <laughs> philosophy. No. So, well, you'll have a different perspective because mountain bikers, I know there's a bit of a, um, a back and forth with mountain biker um, handlebar width. Oh, I mean, currently the trend is if it if it's not really wide, then it's not cool. Okay, so um, I think they started. But but I mean, mountain bike handlebar width, even in the time that I've been racing, as if I, I want to say when I started racing, my bars were like five sixty millimeter width, which I know is like road bars are like four forties, but like so five sixties, yeah. and now on my cross country bike, I think I have. 760s right so like 20 mm. centimeters wider handlebar yeah um, so the difference for mountain bikes though is that you actually have to turn the handlebars so road you really shouldn't really be a whole lot yeah yeah if, if you're riding at any sort of speed you sh- the wheels should be mostly straight and you should be turning with your hips leaning Lean the bike, uh, more than anything else but for mountain bike you actually have to whip the front wheel sometimes yeah, uh, yeah so it's a leverage thing right yeah the wider the bars the more um lever distance yep the less input yeah so the big thing with road bars is narrower is intended to collapse your chest more and make your overall profile narrower mm-hmm. um, the main disadvantage of this is collapse the collapsing of your chest can also um, decrease lung volume is that or, or space for expansion yeah, space for expansion yeah so you know your lungs can't expand to accommodate you know the intake of as much air but also I would argue that your lats are also lengthened when you collapse your chest. Mm-hmm. And when your when your lats are lengthened, they're they're you know not in their optimal length. They're not as strong, and your lats go down the you know the the, the whole entirety of your back. And if they're if they're tight, if they're stiff. You have better core strength overall. You know your torso doesn't move as much. So um, there's a balance there of you know you want to tuck your shoulders in a little bit. But you want to make sure that your, you know, your torso is stiff. So, um, you know, some of these pro riders, even the taller ones, are going to like 38, 36 centimeter bars um, because they were told, if, you know, their profile is better. But, um, you know, you're you're sacrificing core strength, you're sacrificing stability, um, and you also like look a little ridiculous. I mean, uh, I like my 44s, frankly. Um... They're, they're fantastic. I've ridden 42s too. It's definitely different. Uh, it fit, fit through some narrower spaces uh, in, yeah. in the group. With so that. that's another, yeah, another argument is crit riders might want something a little narrower um, because you want you want to protect your bars and you want your first contact to be your shoulders. So yeah. sometimes you want to be a little wider than your bars. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think the traditional guideline is uh, a chromium to a chromium width. So like the, mm-hmm. the width of your shoulders and just measuring that and then you should match the bar to that. Um, yeah. Which is, I think is a good a good starting point. Thirty six seems so narrow to me. 
And yeah, I can, so I, can I... See the, I can see the aerodynamic benefit potentially there. I mean, you could even make an argument that by putting your lats on stretch, you get some passive stability through passive tension of putting <laughs> on stretch, and maybe that doesn't use energy. I don't know. You'd have to do a metabolic study to work that one out, though. Yeah, that's interesting. I know that uh, climbers like wider bars because they can almost... Um... I don't know, like grab them wide and really pull on them mm -hmm. to get the leverage at lower cadences. Um, whereas you'll see, you know, like track riders like them narrow because of the speed of the event, but also because they're sort of floating. Mm -hmm. um, they're not really, you know, using the bars as much anyway. Um, I don't know. You have to figure out what's right for you. I, I think I raced on 36s for a little bit. Then I went to 38s. And I think I realized 40s are actually, you know, where I want to be. And, um, I mean, I'm five, eight, so I'm a little bit of a smaller rider and I'm a little bit, you know, 42 is considered normal 42 centimeter bars. Mm -hmm. So I'm a, a, you know, a little bit smaller on the, on the range, but, um, they, they kind of feel right is all I can say about that. Like, I think that's probably the, I don't know. I think a lot of it has to do with what feels good to you. Right, we talked about this the other day, um, just on a ride. And I think that's a, a big piece of bike fitting at the end of the day, like, and we'll, we'll go even deeper in the next episode, but yes, there's science and biomechanics and measurements and numbers and precision, but you can do all that. And at the end of the day, it needs to feel right to you as a writer. And if it, no, if it doesn't, then you need to throw the numbers out and take a step back. Yeah. And I think also, um, how do you feel about how often you should make adjustments? that's along these same lines of like this doesn't quite feel right but it's only been one day should i see if i you know so i think there's two pieces to this i think you have to acknowledge that your body takes some time to adapt to any adjustments that you make um, so if you have a big race i wouldn't go making changes for the sake of trying to optimize performance um, like if if everything's all good and feels fine I wouldn't go tinkering a month before a race trying to, to yield five more watts. I think that, depending on how much how aggressively you change things, might put you in trouble. Um, now, on the flip side of that, if it's a month before a big race and something hurts, then you might want to change something, right? And see mm -hmm. if you can get yourself out of pain before your big event. Um, but if everything's all good, I wouldn't go. I'd probably... You know, if you're just making changes, I'd probably give yourself a couple of weeks to see how that change um, goes, unless you obviously made something worse, right? If you change something, you go out for a ride, and you're like, wow, my back, neck, knee, hip, whatever, really hurts today. Or like I get saddle sores right away yeah, or something like, like that. Okay, change it. Go At least revert back to where you mm -hmm. were and then reassess, like, okay, well, why did that happen? But if you're just changing for the sake of change and you do a couple of rides, like, oh, I don't know if it's any better, be patient, let your body adapt, you know, go, go a week or two weeks before okay. you go and, and tinker with it again. Like, and, um, and, and only one variable at a time, or are you okay with multiple variables? So the, the, the problem with one variable at a time is the continuous is, nature is you may never get there. Right. And as, as we talked about just with handlebar, like how many things could you change on the handlebar? If you did one at a time, you could spend the entire year trying to get your handlebar to the right position mm -hmm. only to figure out was your saddle. Right. So, yeah, I, mean, I think the key, if you're going to change more than one thing, is you understand what the impact, the potential impacts are of what you're changing. You want to look at the look at it as a whole body system. Yep, and that you, as we said, 
record things, right? Mm-hmm. So what what did I change? And start taking note, like, okay, well, my knee hurt in the front. So based on what I read, I moved my cleats back a little bit. Or I moved my saddle back a little bit. Okay, did my did my knee pain change or whatever it is? And, and understand, like, what, what am I moving towards? Why am I doing that? And what am I expecting the outcome of that to be like have some hypothesis when you go change mm-hmm. don't just don't just change the chain like oh i'm just gonna move my cleat in because yeah i don't know i i want to like so having a sort of like i have this issue i'm looking to resolve this issue i have three potential ways that i could resolve it mm-hmm. it's okay if we try all of them and or maybe two of them and you know in a week or two we should ask did i solve this problem and if you know is it better if it's worse let's Go back and try again. Yep. If it's better and it's not, you know, 100% better, you know, maybe we can try adjusting a little bit more or maybe we can try that third thing that we didn't try and see if that finally gets it all the way. Um, but yeah. it's just like use your scientific method a little bit, right? Yeah. And uh, yeah, do, do it for a reason. Why, like, why am I changing the tilt on my saddle right now? Um, should definitely be going through your head before you get anywhere near your bike with a with a five millimeter and, uh, and probably wrench. yeah probably nowadays also a torque wrench yeah um yeah i think that's um beginner bike fitting hopefully that got you a little bit closer to um thinking about your bike fitting um i don't think you should be afraid of adjusting your bike um and i think that it's okay to tinker i think it's okay to get it wrong sometimes and you just have to experiment for what's right for you and what's right for other people isn't necessarily what's right for you. So be confident in the changes that you're making and be confident that, you know, you have to solve this, you know, whatever problems you have, you have to solve them on your own. Yeah, no, I think that's totally fair. And, you know, obviously there, there are people like me in the world that are happy to point you in the right direction and, and give you the, the advice and guidance uh, from that standpoint. Like, okay, yeah, you're looking, you have this issue and you're looking to resolve that. I have this understanding of biomechanics, bike fitting, physical therapy, chiropractic, wh- whatever it is this expert has uh, to help you go down the right path. So, you know, consult the experts. The The internet is a pretty good resource. There's actually some pretty good stuff out there. Mm-hmm. And you want consensus, um, remember, not uh, yes, just abs- one forum post. Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. And I, I think you'll, you will find that if you look um, and look at reputable sources. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, I think look, look at that stuff, understand where you're starting from, where you're going, Give it, give it time to adapt. It's probably not going to change overnight. And don't, don't, don't go change your bike fit before your century. Go, go ride around the neighborhood when you change it. Yeah. And that's, and that's always what I do. If I change my bike at all, like I change it and then I hop on my bike and I ride around the block a couple of times just to see like, is this, is this reasonable at baseline? Is this, is there anything that feels funky just right away? Like, okay, good. Now I'll go on a longer ride. Okay, now I'll go on the regular training ride. Okay, this is this is fine. Nothing's weird, and then I'll see and reassess in a week or two. Okay, yeah, so this, this was a good change, or no, nah, this wasn't the change I was looking for. Yep. And the last thing that I'll say is, um, you know, there are are some riders who are obsessed with their fit, and they have, you know, all kinds of new cleat positions, all kinds of, you know, they'll do the orthotics thing too, and have like a big bag of um, different insoles and. Um, at the end of the day, sometimes you need to change yourself to get to, you know, mm-hmm. to match the bike. And, you know, there are riders like Alberto Contador who never changed his fit his entire professional career. And, you know, he said, 
look, if there's a problem, I got to stretch it out or I got to, you know, strengthen it out. Mm-hmm. Um, so make sure that you're not just, um, you know, putting band-aids yeah, in. Not, tr- not just trying to buy a solution to your problem. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's, uh, that's this episode. Uh, Todd, do you have anything else? No, I think that's it. Uh, next time we'll dig a little deeper. You probably didn't think we could go deeper on bike fit, but oh, yes, we most definitely can. Yeah, I think some of the, okay, a little bit of a um, teaser, I guess. Like uh, I, I've done saddle pressure mapping and foot pressure mapping, and those are both fascinating. Um, yes, the, the, this is very interesting stuff that you get out of that. Um, I think also some interesting things you can learn from uh, like doing spin scan type stuff and looking at a, a rider's power distribution. Yeah, so the um, the sinusoidal wave of each pedal stroke, mm-hmm. um, looking at the steepness and um, the shape of it and stuff. Yep, absolutely. And also the, um, even simple stuff like recording, um, you know, the like a side view of yep. an individual and seeing and angles. Absolutely. And, um, and then also looking at like uh, motion of the hips um, mm-hmm. throughout the pedal stroke, stuff like that. So that's the next episode. Yes, we'll, we'll dig into that for episode 15. Uh, until then, as we always say, keep the oversight down. And you know, please share with your, your friends, folks you ride with, uh, maybe or maybe not your competitors, depending on how you feel about that. Yeah. And uh, if you liked it, you know, give us a review on iTunes. Uh, we're also open to feedback, too, of course. And if there's something that you'd like us to talk about, you know, shoot us over an email, and we'd be happy to take it on in a future episode.